The Shakeup is brought to you by HubSpot Podcast Network. That's right. The HubSpot Podcast Network is a one-stop audio destination for business professionals. It's where education meets inspiration with amazing shows like My First Million, where you can hear stories from the entrepreneurs who made it big. And where the hosts, Sam and Sean, don't shy away from the tough questions. With access to a collection of marketing, sales, service, and operation shows, you'll have all the information you need as your company goes from startup to scale up and beyond. Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at HubSpot.com slash Podcast Network. You're listening to The Shakeup, where we explore the business decisions that dare to be different and the leaders who are shaking up their industries. My name is Alexis Gay. I'm Brianne Kimmel, and on each episode, we'll bring in research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of business leaders and learn how they make the decisions that challenge the status quo. You can support the show by following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or honestly, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there hanging out, talking business, ready and waiting to shake things up with you. Are you ready to dive in? Absolutely. Today, we're talking about the ready-to-eat meal delivery market, a multi-million dollar pitch, and what data science has in common with milk alternatives. You guessed it, we're talking about Daily Harvest. And later, we'll interview Rachel Drury, the founder and CEO, about how she grew the company to 250 million in revenue in under five years. Yeah, that's right. We'll ask Rachel how she pitched her way to $42 million in 2017 alone, how she's fixing the broken food system with transparent farm frozen ingredients, and how she's using using data to co-create with her customers. Absolutely. So let's set the table a little bit. Did you like that? That was a pause for laughing. I liked that. That was funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One thing the pandemic has shown us is that the food system in the U.S. is on a precarious ledge from items being completely impossible to find to occasional drops of different items whenever they could find their way into stores. I had no idea how seemingly haphazard everything is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's been so fascinating to uncover how Daily Harvest has entered such a competitive space with really a, a fundamentally new approach. Um, if you look at mm. HelloFresh, they launched in 2011, then Blue Apron in 2012, mm-hmm. then Daily Harvest and Sunbasket launched a few years later in 2014. And it's, right. it's, it's so interesting because today HelloFresh is the largest meal delivery provider. And it's been great to see just how these companies have really thrived during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's a less obvious category that's really benefited from the rise of remote, remote work as well. And I was recently thinking about um, HelloFresh and doing a little bit of research, and the CEO had said that the trend towards eating more meals mm. at home accelerated during the pandemic, but they expect that these key drivers will continue to be permanent. Totally. And as much as I would love to literally never hear the word pandemic again, we have to acknowledge that a lot of the trends and phenomena that came out of that time period are going to have implications for the future. It's an interesting one with these in-home meal kits. It's aligned to many different trends that we're seeing broadly. There's this cultural shift Mm -hmm. that's happening and it's moving more towards experiences and away from traditional consumption. Mm. So these kits have essentially become in-home entertainment for couples, for families. Oh, that's really for interesting. For friends that want to come over. Actually, Americans aged 25 to 40 spend 55 minutes less per week on average cooking and washing up than Gen X adults. And I know I have the youthful pizzazz of a 20-year-old, but spoiler alert, I am actually between the ages of 25 and 40. (laughs) I mean, that makes a ton of sense. We're also a generation that has been very fortunate to eat oftentimes breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the office. And so I find that a lot of us during the pandemic, it was the first time that we were at home for Hmm. three meals a day. 
I think a lot of us are learning new life skills like cooking for the first time. That's a really good point. Right when we all started working from home full time, I had some people in my network they felt very entitled to that food that was provided by work. I heard requests for uh, meal stipends, for example. Well, oh, because we're not getting fed at work, we should be paid more or food should be in some way provided, which is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I think what's interesting is like in the context, going back to the work example, you know, historically there are these catering companies and a lot of these food suppliers that sit in between, you know, the office and the employees. For something like Daily Harvest, they actually, you know, have completely cut out their grocery relationships and they're selling direct to consumer, which is not easy at all. But ultimately, it gives the company more control over the quality of the product and the delivery experience as well, which I think today matters Mm. more and more because people want that whole experience. And quite frankly, a lot of people want it to be very Instagrammable as well. And so it's really fun to have friends over, do something that's really beautiful and, you know, more exciting and, and different than the average, you know, Uber Eats or takeout. And so I think that quality control of the whole experience has been something that's very differentiated. Wow. That's a really great point. It's funny the point you made about things being Instagrammable because I, in my lifetime, I think have received conservatively 10 to 20,000 Instagram ads for Daily Harvest. And I'm honestly very flattered that they think that I'm cool enough to be marketing this product to. But when I saw their ads, I was like, oh no, this is this is for cool people. <laughs> it was like, everything looks so beautiful. And I was like, they don't know who they're marketing oh. to right now. <laughs> it's interesting. It's cool, but it's also very easy to understand. It seems like they built a brand that really targets who they want to be reaching. So in 2017, Daily Harvest raises $43 million from a bunch of investors, including some celebrity investors like Gwyneth Paltrow, Serena Williams, Sean White, Bobby Flay, Haley Duff, and also some VC funds, Imaginary Ventures, and VMG Partners. Brianne, here's a question. You are a venture capitalist. That's not the question. That is a statement. If you could take yourself back to 2017, not knowing that COVID and a prolonged work from home period was coming, would you have made the investment in Daily Harvest? What's interesting is that I read on Rachel's first day at Columbia Business School, the dean asked her incoming class to articulate the purpose of starting a business. And Rachel Mm. was the only one in the class to say to make money. So that's a little bit, it's very controversial in today's environment. Mm. I find that the politically correct answer is to say, you want to do Mm. good in the world, you want to solve the world's problems. She from day one has been very adamant about building a very lean, very capital efficient business. And Mm -hmm. long term really wants to set the entire team up for success. And so that's the type of founder that you want to back because she's absolutely unstoppable. Totally. And not to mention, I I completely agree with you that I think there is a lot of pressure on businesses today to put aside making money as some a driver and a motivator for the business and instead focus on some of those more impact-focused statements like, we're here to do good and we're here to serve XYZ. But I, I really think that to your point, if you want to set your biz, if you want to set your business up for success in the long term, I don't see why we're hiding the fact that you also want to make money. Because if you as a business are profitable and you're able to put that profit back into the business, you'll ultimately deliver a better customer experience. Obviously, that's not true for everybody, but I really respect that she came out and said, no, that's the purpose of business. Yeah, absolutely. And that continues to be true for the company today. Like they have raised venture capital, mm-hmm. but you know, in yeah. talking to her early, early investors, the team is very capital efficient. 
They were very yeah. early in doing a lot of micro-influencer campaigns and really making sure that <laughs> yeah. they were connecting with not only celebrities, and many of those celebrities were early investors, but also this next level down of everyday people who are healthy and active and work and, you know, would would serve as just hmm. great brand ambassadors for the company. And so they've done some really experimental things from a marketing perspective as well. Yeah. What do you think the value is of a celebrity investor, more than just capital? Today, this has become a very common trend. Um, it's an effective strategy mm. for consumer companies to establish themselves using known celebrities and known celebrities across mm. different categories. It's also a trusted way to access celebrities' fans as well. And so I find that, mm -hmm. you know, it brings a lot mm. of business credibility, experience, like strategic partnerships. There's a lot of value in, in bringing in people who are outside of, you know, traditional Silicon Valley or traditional investors because they bring a yeah. new perspective and, and a new and access to a new network of people. Totally agree on all of that. But I just think that every once in a while, it's important to remember that having a lot of money doesn't necessarily make you a good investor. As a founder, I guess I'm, I would feel a little bit more hesitant get receiving an investment from someone that was maybe only playing that playing in that space for the flash of it and not really to be that long-term strategic partner I think you need if you're going to give away a piece of your company. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I'm seeing is oftentimes celebrities will invest in later stage companies. And the reason for that is... As someone who's incredibly busy that has a full-time thing, whether it's a touring musician mm -hmm. or a professional athlete, there's not as much time to meet companies throughout the week to do the diligence, yes, to totally, help totally. with customer development, to do the day-to-day -day of an investor. And so they'll oftentimes write a smaller check once the company is already working. And the founders typically yes, view yes. that as like an extension of their marketing strategy. Okay, so obviously Rachel crushed this pitch to some extent because she got $43 million of investment. What do you think, is there anything that, I know all pitches are different, but is there anything that you've seen all good pitches have in common? Yeah, one thing that Rachel has really nailed, and this is something that not a lot of companies have, um, you know, the world has shifted from a growth at all costs mentality to a growth with profitability. And Rachel has hmm. been very thoughtful from the beginning and really stressed the importance of being capital efficient. As an investor, it's important to not only back great ideas, but rather evaluate and find highly capable people who are ready to build an enduring company. And so a lot of people have great ideas, but it ultimately comes down to the execution. And Daily Harvest really nailed this in a crowded space. That makes a ton of sense, especially because, you know, we didn't know COVID was coming. We didn't know that suddenly this huge curveball was going to be thrown the way of, of most, if not all, businesses. And investing in a founder that you believe will be able to pivot and survive and thrive no matter what comes their way can be way more important than just investing in a business that, quote, seems solid in a market today when we have no idea what's coming down the pike. Yeah. It's funny. Something I was thinking about today in giving a good pitch is that in comedy, there's something that my favorite comedian, John Mulaney, said once about having confidence on stage. He was saying that it's sort of like you're flying a plane and you know when you fly a plane, everybody in the seats wants to know that the pilot is going to land the plane. You don't know, you don't want the pilot to come on the loudspeaker and be like, yeah, I think I, I think I got this. And so when you're doing stand-up comedy, you don't want to, even if it's true, you don't want to show the audience 
that you're sort of like, yeah, I think this joke is going to land. But if you approach it with confidence, it puts the audience at ease in a way that helps them enjoy the humor and not worry on your behalf. And so I feel that that must be true in giving a good pitch. If you're talking to a founder and the founder themselves doesn't believe in the idea or they don't believe in themselves and their ability to execute on the idea, that would be a massive red flag to me as somebody receiving the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's helpful to keep in mind that founders are not only pitching investors, they're also pitching future hires. And so that Mm. confidence is something that's really important if you're trying to convince someone to join your company or as you think about scaling the team, ultimately the role of the CEO is hiring people that are smarter than you and experts in certain parts of the business. And so ultimately you want to land in a place where everyone on the team is you know, smarter than you, they're specialized, you have to Mm -hmm. really trust and delegate. And so that starts with first having a lot of confidence and also having, um, you know, authority to jump in when you need to, but also trusting the team to do the hard work. Wow. Talking about a CEO needing to hire good people, segue of a lifetime, baby. All right. We've talked about food delivery. We've talked pitch meetings, and now it's time to get analytical. Data, algorithms, etc. Because in March of 2021, Brad Klingenberg joined Daily Harvest as chief algorithms officer after nearly eight years at Stitch Fix, and prior to that, Netflix. Holy data background, Batman. Yeah, this is amazing. And I'm really excited to dig into this because Rachel's ability to pull someone out of Netflix to a modern food company is really impressive. It's one of these things where, you know, it makes sense for Netflix. It would have been much less obvious for a direct-to-consumer food company Mm. to make this sort of hire. Well, it's interesting because going back to the fast food category for a second, the Domino's CEO Patrick Doyle said for a few years now that Domino's is a software company that sells pizza. What do you think about that? It's wild. <laughs> if you if you track the growth of Domino's, I always joke that this is actually one of my favorite tech companies. Like they have really? consistently delivered quarter after quarter on their numbers. It's very impressive. Yes. And I remember when they introduced the Domino's pizza tracker. Yes. Putting technology to good use. Where's the pizza? When is it arriving, et cetera. And we've seen a similar approach from Starbucks as well. I mean, Starbucks app, great app. It's true. Yeah, it's true. I think there's this greater shift where every company will ultimately be a tech company. Um, doesn't doesn't matter what sort of industry you're in. If you look on LinkedIn, they're mm-hmm. hiring engineers, they're hire, hiring data scientists. Mm-hmm. I think we've entered this world where, you know, even the most uh, successful and known offline businesses are now increasingly getting yeah. pulled online. And so it's starting to you know, many traditional businesses are now mirroring tech companies. You know, a question that I have in this regard is like, when does a company need someone in charge of algorithms? Does Mm. a food company need to invest this much in technology? Absolutely. I was going to say, when I hear food company, I don't necessarily think algorithms, but honestly, that's not true. I think any company right now needs to be investing in technology and in a back end that'll help them learn about their customers and how the customers are interacting with their product. Because unless you plan to build and launch one thing and never change it for the entire life cycle of your company, you're going to need to know what your customers like, what keeps them coming back for more, and how you can keep your costs low as a result. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, too, because one of the most difficult things to solve is delivery. And to do delivery Mm. well does require a lot of data. 
And so they are, they, they continue to iterate on their customer experience. They continue to optimize their ad campaigns, but they're also solving this delivery piece. And so one yeah. way that they, they have a, a really awesome team is also thinking about market expansion and, you know, where do they go next and in which hmm. country, you know, do they go international? If so, at what point do they go international? And so I think across the board, it's important to have, you know, this team built out. And it's also great to see that they've been able to really maintain brand awareness, um, through a lot of these like community efforts that they're doing and through a lot of the paid marketing, which Daily Harvest mm-hmm. is essentially everywhere and it requires a, a, a team to do that. I think you're right. And I, I also think though, you know why you and I think it's everywhere? Because we're right in the target demo. I bet if you ask people who aren't in the target demo, they they wouldn't know what Daily Harvest is, Yeah, honestly. Yeah, it's a great point. And that speaks to a lot of things and a lot of trends. But I also think it speaks to the way that data and algorithmically enabled decision-making on your marketing spend does help you drive efficiencies when it comes to your spending. Wow, did you like that sentence? That was great. Yeah, that was great. That was good, right? <laughs> your your tech your tech days are coming back. Oh God, it never leaves you. You can take the girl out of the blazer. You cannot take the blazer out of the girl. Brianne, here's the thing though about algorithms. Do you think that there is good and bad to using algorithms to learn about your customers? Or do you see it only as positive? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, this is something that I've thought a lot about from a Netflix point of view. Sometimes when you over-personalize, you lose the surprise and delight that comes with discovering something new. Mm. And so in the case of Daily Harvest, you know, I think they're in a a really strong position. They're able to experiment with new ingredients. Um, I've noticed that in a couple of uh, their meals, they do have avocados. And so, you know, you can start to Mm -hmm. see pieces of pop culture show up in many of the Mm -hmm. things that they're doing. And so it does seem like they're analyzing broad consumer trends and what's about to become popular. And they're integrating Mm. many of those ingredients into future items, which is really cool. Absolutely. And I really like your point about potentially losing the surprise and delight aspect if your decision-making is too algorithmically driven in terms of what you're showing your customers, because sometimes you don't know what you like until you see it. And I guess what I would think a business like this could do, I don't know if they do, But I almost wonder if you could build like an imperfect algorithm, like an intentionally imperfect algorithm, one that gets it like 90% right on what it knows that you like, and then leave that extra 10% of the time and have randomize it. I agree with that. I think there's a couple of interesting things that you can do here as well, as far as like going back to the cauliflower example. If you are experimenting with a new product, it would be fairly easy to send samples in the next box to someone. And so maybe you Mm. get something for free as a way to really try before you buy and experiment with maybe a, a food type or an ingredient that you wouldn't typically buy. And so I'm sure they're thinking about ways to upsell and cross sell and introduce a lot of these new ways of discovering, you know, your new favorite meal. Sounds like a good money making opportunity to me. After the break, we'll talk to Rachel to learn how she's taken Daily Harvest to $250 million in less than five years, and we'll hear just what it takes to be a pitch meeting pro. Today's episode is sponsored by those fine folks over at HubSpot. Managing conversations with prospects and customers and creating a remarkable experience can be tough. HubSpot wants to change that. That's why they created a CRM platform that makes it easy to align across teams. 
Oh, it's so much easier. With HubSpot's unified system of record, all teams can create a better customer experience without missing a beat. We love a unified system of record. We always say that. <laughs> you can install live chat on your website and allow sales or support to get in touch with prospects directly. Or send marketing emails on behalf of sales reps or customer success managers. Not to mention, it allows prospects to book meetings with reps without wasting time. Yeah, and best of all, teams can get access to all of a contact's history so they can have more informed conversations with prospects and customers and design a better overall experience. The result, all your customer people can align around the same goals, consistently great customer journeys that drive growth and lifetime loyalty. Learn more about how you can scale your company without scaling complexity at HubSpot.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and leave a review. And if you don't like what you hear, tell a friend anyway. And don't forget to subscribe. I am so excited that we're here with Rachel Drury, the founder and CEO of Daily Harvest. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on The Shakeup. We have been talking about the growth of subscription meal kits and in particular, Daily Harvest's approach, which I truly love. I love the latte pods. You can add your own milk, which I know milk preferences are so controversial and that's become like the new rage is what kind of milk are you using? Yeah, and so I've become obsessed with the latte pods. <laughs> Absolutely. And we actually just launched milk, just thinking about that insight, which is also a really innovative format and way to make it. So yeah, it's been fun. So Rachel, we've been locked up inside for over a year. We weren't really able to go to restaurants to the extent that we used to and the meal kit delivery market definitely seems to be skyrocketing. But before I ask you about the Daily Harvest business model in particular, I'm curious, why meal kits? Are you a foodie? Are you an amateur chef? Yeah. So we're actually not a meal kit. We're more like a modern CPG than a meal kit. Our food doesn't rotate. You don't have to really cook it. It's already prepped. Hmm. Um, so we were really trying to shake up yes. <laughs> all of it. Would you say you're defining a new category? Absolutely. And I got into it because, yeah, I'm absolutely a foodie. We'll do anything for a good meal. Yes. Um, <laughs> that sounded weird, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I didn't want to compromise. I wanted food that um, was convenient because that's what makes fruits and vegetables hard. But I also wanted food that was jam-packed with all the stuff that I know is good for me. And, right. you know, what I like to say is Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, mm. right? Well, we've ended up with a Hippocratic oath for medicine being thy medicine, whereas food has kind of lost its way. So we're really here to change that. So here is, in my opinion, what's so broken with food. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of things broken, but, yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges is that the way that big food is set up is very um, systemically broken. Hmm. The way that, you know, starting with the investors, right? So investors in big food companies, the big CPGs of the world, are really focused on things like margin accretion and um, slow, steady returns, dividends. And when you think about how that translates to food, hmm. right? To squeeze out margins out of food means to squeeze out nutrition. And it's, it's pretty ugly. And the way that they're structurally set up is not to innovate. You know, I think case in point is like craft in recent years, 
right? Like their big innovation last year was launching a pink macaroni and cheese. And you're like, right. what? <laughs> They've just completely lost touch with the customer and they don't mm. have the structural agility to be able to move with modern times. And Daily Harvest is really a platform that allows us to innovate and iterate, co-create our food with our customers. The structural agility to get our food to our customers when they want it, mm -hmm. which spurs this virtuous marketing cycle, which means that customers are getting what they want. And the reason you see us all over Instagram is because if we're co-creating our food with the people who are eating it, when they eat it, they're excited that we listened. Yeah, that's amazing. This might be a, a, a big question, but I'm, I'm very curious. Like, what drives the demand for your product? Is it that younger generations are focusing on healthier food options? Is it the traditional, you know, family dinner is not as much a part of our culture? Is it because of the struggles of the restaurant industry? What do you think about? Yeah, so I think it's a, there's a few things, right? We're kind of at the crossroads of a bunch of, I hate using this term, but like, here it is. Let me hear uh, it. Of mega trends, right? Oh, mega trends. I know. <laughs> I did okay. it. I said it. And now it's a business podcast. <laughs> um, but really thinking about, uh, you know, the journey of health and wellness that we were all on, um, going back to a lot of our roots, like, I don't know. I just, I always think back to like, the snack well, I don't know yeah. if, you, if you guys remember, uh -huh. like the snack well was this like big health innovation and mm -hmm. it's like sugar, right? I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think people are just smarter and there's enough education out hmm. there where people are realizing that if I stick to the basics, right? Like things my grandparents ate, things my great grandparents ate, then like I'm, I'm going to be okay. So our mm. whole food ethos is really based on this idea where we're not going to tell you what not to eat. Absolutely not. We are, going, we are including everybody's eating habits and everybody's eating values, but we're going to provide a base of fruits and vegetables. So our goal is to get everybody to eat more fruits and vegetables. Yep. And then if you want to add a piece of chicken to your harvest bowl, if you yep. want to add, you know, um, to your point earlier about milk, almond milk, coconut milk, oat milk to a smoothie, you want to add bone broth to a soup, like we're, we think that's great. In 2017, you had $43 million in investment, which is incredible. But in order to get that type of cash infusion, it starts with a pitch. And I want to hear a little bit about one of those pitch meetings. Back then in 2017, how were you approaching crafting the pitch around Daily Harvest? Yeah, so... 2017 was, um, I'd say, the point when we felt like we had reached true product market fit. Hmm. So pre fundraising previous to that point, I'd say was incredibly difficult. People didn't understand how the collections that we had laddered up to this bigger picture, to this platform. Yeah. There was a lot of friction in the fundraising process, especially because the people from who I was trying to raise money just didn't see that there was a problem. Yeah. They were like, well, why, why wouldn't I just buy Jamba Juice? Right. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin yeah. with that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever feel discouraged after meetings like that? Oh, I discouraged wouldn't even doesn't even cover it. Really? Um, I think that fundraising is the most demoralizing process in oh the entire gosh. world. <laughs> and in those pitch meetings, you know, what were you before you went in the room? What was the key message you were really trying to land with the people you were seeking investment from? Yeah. So there were two things. The message I was trying to land was just this big picture that big food is completely broken mm -hmm. and that there's this opportunity and that big food is not meeting customer demand. 
Hmm. Um, where I would say it got really tricky wasn't necessarily with the problem statement. It really was with um, a lot of people got tripped up on the frozen piece. Really? Why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, they still do. Really? Um, but it was really about like, everyone's like, oh, so you're disrupting frozen food. And I'm like, Ooh. soup is not a frozen category. Lattes are not a frozen category. Right. Breakfast cereal is not a frozen category. How How is that your logic? Um, frozen is how we make food incredibly clean unprocessed yeah. and convenient yeah. and sustainable also. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is the means to an end. And, um, you know, really trying to focus on that that big picture to, to paint this story that, you know, it's not, we're not going after frozen food. The market is so much bigger than that, right? Yeah. Our, our lattes compete with Starbucks just as much as they do with Keurig. Mm-hmm. Our soup compete with Hale and Hardy just as much as they do with like a Campbell's. Yeah. Um, so it really is food as a general category. And that's a big vision. And it was um, it was hard to get people to wrap their head around that being our North Star. But eventually we did it. And the other thing that I was really looking for in that round was values alignment from our investors. Mm. Because when you're when you're innovating in something like food, which is something that people eat and ingest. Um, I wanted to make sure that we were never going to end up in a position where, you know, some of the invest investment community in big food has caused a lot of challenge of health challenges right. for humanity. Right. And there was a lot of um, ensuring that our investors were going to be values aligned as well. Wow, that's amazing. How did you actually kind of reverse the pitch and ask those investors questions to mm. give you a real feel if they were going to add value and be a valuable person to help you scale daily harvest. Yeah. I mean, one of the tricks when you're pitching is that you're also always selling, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that I did was I showed that there was great customer demand for these things. Like sustainability is now table stakes. It wasn't five years ago. Right. Um, so just showing where the customer demand was going and showing mm-hmm. that um, there was also a, a like business revenue opportunity tied to everything that we were hoping to do on the sustainability side, mm-hmm. um, I think was really important part of the story. But some of the questions that we asked to just to you know, make sure that that people were aligned, um, actually weren't asked to the investors directly. Really? It was always to other companies that they invested in and not the ones that they introduced us to. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, those back channel calls where, you know, you ask about a, a time where there was a really difficult decision that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you had to weigh margins versus, um, doing what was right for the customer. Yeah. Right. Like for me, that's, that's like one of the hardest tensions. Yes. And for, I was always going to focus on what was best for the customer. Yes. Um, and you know, what's best for the earth is also best for the customer. Yeah. So I think it was really in those back channels where I learned about people's values, because when somebody's trying to close a deal, they can, they'll say lots of things. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of people, I mean, outside of the tech industry, this notion of, you know, a lot of key information is passed through back channel, through text messages, through phone calls. It almost feels like as much as our industry is so progressive and so innovative, 
most of the important conversations and like the critical information that you need to scale your company actually sits through person to person dialogue. That's very separate from that pitch meeting and very separate from a lot of the direct conversations that you're having. Oh yeah. It goes down in the DMS. Absolutely. And I don't have a very large network. Like that's not never been one of my strong suits. Um, So exactly like sending people messages on Instagram and, um, you know, reaching out to people on LinkedIn, people are willing to talk, people are willing to help. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on your positioning daily harvest as a platform, because there's a lot of complexity in how to actually operationalize and turn this into a, a true platform and something that's very scalable At the Series B, what were some of the bullet points or what were the the key next steps that had to happen to make Daily Harvest truly scalable? Yeah, so a lot of it sat in our supply chain, um, but then there's also the collection expansion. So the proof point was that we had had multiple collections through multiple day parts. Um, The way that we had built our supply chain to that point was, you know, we had a lot of amazing farmers um, that we engaged directly with. We still, to this day, do all of our own sourcing and, and work directly with, with everyone. Um, but a lot of that story was very idealistic, I want to say. Mm. And it was a hard thing to do at that scale, even like our packaging, right? Like we had these grand, these like grand plans to have completely like home compostable packaging. And it was, there was a lot of storytelling there because it was, there's like a scale problem, right? Mm. So you always have this chicken or egg problem when you're talking about physical goods, where in order to make something cost effective so that you can, you know, think about things like profitability, for example, um, you have to have the scale to be able to justify those big swings. So, Mm. um, I think that the the most important thing and the most important like part of the vision to get pe- wrap people's heads around was this idea that we were disrupting food as a category. Here were our proof points, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was showing that there was so much more to it that we had planned as far as um, not only making sure that the business was scalable from a supply chain perspective Mm -hmm. and making sure that we were able to maintain our agility, but also kind of layering in this sustainability piece to it, finding a way to to succinctly put it all together into one neat package without having any comps in the market. But a lot of companies that are offering food delivery in some capacity are keeping their offering really simple, focusing Mm -hmm. on just dinner or just one type of food. But you have over 60 items for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Was that a conscious decision you made to offer so many more than other companies? Yeah. So we're almost at 100 now. Oh, my gosh. And our brand affords us an incredible amount of co-creation with our customers, right? right? Our, Our customers love us. They love to share with us. So because we have this direct link with our customers, what we're able to do is we actually phenotype taste buds and we understand 
what every single customer wants and needs down to an incredible level of detail that allows us to create food for each individual. We don't look at customers as averages. We really look at each individual and we create food to meet the needs of those customers. So the reason we have so many smoothies, there's no customer that's ordering all of our smoothies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But we have smoothies for different taste preferences and different eating values and different profiles. And as we expand into this collection depth, we see different groups consuming over different day parts. So it's really systematic the way that we think about it. And it's really served us well to increase share of stomach over time as we've been able to take this data and turn it into uh, meeting the needs of our customers. Wow. I'm so curious. How did you build that? Um, So we have an incredible algorithms team. Hmm. who um, has really been a key part to our food development. Um, And then the personalization tied to that development to make sure that we're matching the right people with the right food that was created for them. Wow. That's really incredible. I have so many questions about (laughs) sort of like the way that you as a company that is providing healthful food options for people uses data and the way that you use, as you mentioned, algorithms to help you in your product development decision-making. And then we have the supply chain that allows Mm. us to be really nimble and respond in six to eight weeks, which is completely unprecedented in food. Help us understand this because, you know, a lot of other people might be thinking this too. You know, you recently brought on uh, Brad Klingenberg, the former head of algorithms at Netflix and Stitch Fix, which are not food companies. And, you know, you could say are both a little bit outside the food industry in general. Can you tell us a little bit about the need for like a chief algorithms officer with such a background? Yeah. So algorithms are the center of our platform. Without without the algorithms that help us really turn those insights into something that's actionable, um, the rest kind of doesn't matter. So Mm. that co-creation all lives in that world. Our personalization, our um, replenishment platform, which is, you know, you. our goal is not to, to send you food every week. We don't want to do that, yeah. um, which is very different from a lot of the businesses out there where like the period between purchases matches the period in which you're meant to consume, right? Daily oh. harvest is non-perishable. We are mm. frozen. And our goal is to keep you stocked, Mm -hmm. right? So we Mm -hmm. really have to get deep into customer behaviors to understand when you need to be topped up um, and when you need to, to, um, you know, get another box that's going to help you keep your freezer stocked so that at that moment when you are hungry, you have what you want there. Right. And helping you find the right thing that is that thing that you're going to want all lies in our algorithms. How do you balance um, qualitative insights as well? Like, do you have a great team that's reading customer support tickets? Do you have focus groups? Like, how do you collect a lot of individual insights from each Daily Harvest user? So um, there's two ways in which we do that. One is we have an incredibly passionate care team. Um, one of my areas that I'm really passionate about that, um, touches on my background is I started my career at Four Seasons Hotels. And for me, daily harvest is not about marketing. It's not about meeting customer needs. It's about anticipating them. And that Mm -hmm. to me is true hospitality. Mm -hmm. And a part of that is how are we anticipating customers needs? So we really, um, embolden our, our care team to be a part 
of this co-creation journey and and Hmm. adding the context behind what we're seeing in the data. That's a huge piece of of what we do. Um, And then we have a in-house research team that takes the data that we see and ties it together with the emotional, the psychological, you, you know, the, the why behind what we're seeing. Yeah. And it's an incredibly powerful combination when you put all of those pieces together under one roof with the same goals. Rachel, I don't think most leaders would be able to see the connections between such disparate parts of the organization or potential parts of the organization, like your focus on hospitality and then this um, passion for data and algorithms. When you were building out your team, were you actively trying to pull from such diverse backgrounds or was it something that came up over time? Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if my belief is big food being broken, um, it would have been very hard for us to hire people from big food. So mm. we had to bring in people from different areas of the business world to really be able to do something different. You know, we have people from all over the technology, commerce, um, Mm -hmm. consumer landscape, but very few people who actually come from the world of big food. Brianne, does that sound similar to the approach that you see in most tech companies? I mean, I, I hate to, to use the, a buzzword, but to disrupt an industry, you often We said disruption. All right, let's go. Now it's started, everybody. <laughs> We're disrupting this disruptors at this point. Um, <laughs> what, what gets me really excited about something like Daily Harvest is the fact that you're applying so many startup and tech-related concepts to an industry that is so antiquated and... So antiquated. I would say not on behalf of the average person. Like, I, I get so frustrated when I go to the grocery store and you see things that are packaged as health, as healthy, but they're filled with sugar. And so one of the challenges there is, like, for the average American, um, you know, myself included, like you want to eat healthy, but if it's it's really mm-hmm. hard to tell from the packaging and from the labels, like what is actually healthy. hundred percent. So I want to talk a little bit about your marketing mix and some of the data personalization things that we touched on earlier. Yeah. So, you know, in a world where startups rely so heavily on Facebook, Google, and Amazon for sales, you have invested in TV ads, in influencer partnerships. And actually, I just saw on your Instagram a friend of mine in one of your influencer partnerships, and I was like, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, subway ads and event pop-ups, and that all sounds expensive. And I'm, But it seems to have paid off. So, you know, I would love to know... What was your decision-making process like in making some of those maybe heftier bets? Yeah. So growing up through the world of marketing, Mm -hmm. one of my goals early on was to not be beholden to any one channel, right? Like it's really easy to scale or was easy to scale on Facebook. Now it's a whole different ball of wax, Um, but it was really easy to scale marketing Mm -hmm. on Facebook and on Google and to, um, you know, use the unique arbitrage opportunities to to grow a business. Um, the landscape has changed significantly, but knowing because I had a lot of experience in this, knowing that the landscape is always changing, it's a complete moving target, and something that works today will not work tomorrow, and something that work you know that works tomorrow will not work next week. That's mm-hmm. just how you have to live um, in this world. 
we wanted to make sure that we were equally reliant on all channels. So we went out really um, aggressively into every channel you can imagine to give us that optionality and that agility where we can change our spend in different channels based on what happens to be working at the time. So, um, you know, influencer marketing, mm. it's a part of our mix. Yeah. Um, TV, it's a part of our mix. But I think the most important thing is that um, even if one thing is working really well is that you keep your spend, hmm. um, you keep the other channels engaged enough where if something changes, you can always pivot and change that mix. That's really interesting because I would assume that because you're essentially going after really large known brands that have a, a, a ton of spend. Like if you're a, a modern CPG and you're creating latte, lattes that compete with Starbucks, like in my mind, Starbucks will always outspend you or a lot of these like big brands are, are so down to spend oh, yeah. money. Um, right. How did you think about like some of these brand activations and more brand building exercises? Plus, like, you know, when you first got started and, and to where we are today, I feel like the whole influencer marketing game has just like completely changed. So how do you think about some of the like branded daily harvest stuff versus like yes. engaging with influencers and people that are likely to use daily harvest anyway because it falls into like this new category of just easier healthier eating so one of the things that um kind of ties to this platform that we've created and the importance of the agility in our supply chain people always say like what's the secret to your really fast growth and i actually talk about our supply chain which is not the answer that people want to hear but the reason why is um, I don't know if you've ever seen a Rogers bell curve. It's a normal bell curve, like mm -hmm. a normal distribution, right? I haven't, um, but I'm picturing it. I can picture yeah, a bell. It's a bell. It's Great. A bell. <laughs> uh, but if you think about the way normal product development works, right? You have an insight and it can take up to a year to bring something to market. Mm -hmm. And if you think about like early adopters going into the early majority and then the late majority, right? Climbing up that, that curve. By the time you get to the top, that's usually when big companies are going to market, hmm. right? Sure. So our supply chain agility, our data allows us to go to market when it, when an early adopter is interested in something. And our early adopters, because we listen to them, yes. become these evangelizers. And what's really powerful is that it spurs this virtuous marketing cycle that like rides itself up that curve as opposed to facing headwinds on the way down where you have to like hire Justin Timberlake to shake his tushy on television. Right. I just said tushy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you didn't come on expecting to say tushy, did you? <laughs> I didn't expect to say tushy. I have a four-year-old and like tushy is the word. That's okay. Um, this is the shake-up. Anything can happen. <laughs> um, but like, you know, having to hire somebody like JT to, to yeah. shake his butt on television right. is because you've missed the insight. You've missed the moment where you've just given the customer what they want. You've anticipated their need. Hmm. Right. So a lot of people think that we have this really expensive, like really robust paid influencer mm -hmm. strategy. Of course, we pay for some influencers, but really what you're seeing is us co-creating with our customers and our customers being so glad that we listened to them and gave them what they want. We've also given them this opportunity to align daily harvest, like, right, we provide the fruits and vegetables, you align daily harvest to your eating values. So right. that milk that you talked about earlier, Brianne, 
daily harvest smoothies or lattes with your oat milk then become your platform to evangelize totally. for your beliefs and your eating values. Like, like that is just endemic to what we've created. Like that is, that's just a part right. of the platform. And then mm-hmm. the other side is, is brand marketing. We will only do brand marketing when we feel like it is going to um, further our narrative. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, when it's going to point out how we are really differentiated from others in the market, because that's the goal of brand marketing for us. It's not about brand awareness. Yeah. Like we're never going to we're never going to outspend Starbucks. Right. Everybody knows Starbucks. Not everybody knows Daily Harvest. But we really focus on those points of differentiation. Wow. Rachel, I'm so blown away by what you've built and just being able to hear some of those insights, especially what you just said about essentially having a fast enough iteration process so you're actually able to anticipate the needs of your early adopters. That I think is an incredible insight that I don't see a lot of other companies adopting in the market. So massive kudos to you. And I'm so excited that we were able to have you on. If people want to find Daily Harvest products and learn more, where can they find you? At dailyharvest.com. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. This has been a pleasure. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Don't Don't forget forget to subscribe and leave leave us a review. review. Pretty good. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe, with research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner. Word of mouth is the best way to help people discover our little podcast. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review, you know, to let other people know how awesome we are. We have some amazing guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. See you next time. 